This is the Living Vertizano podcast brought to you by The Church at Riverstone, a fellowship of the Church of the Nazarene in Madera, California. Our episode today continues on in Malachi 2, looking at verses 10 through 16, where Malachi addresses the breaking of the covenant through divorce. Together, we will be discussing a call to faithfulness. Hi, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Natasha. I'm Brittany. I'm Derek. And we are the Living Vertizano Podcast. Uh, here again, as we are working through Haggai and Malachi uh, to continue this conversation. Um, this week, we're going to be looking at Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 to 16. Uh, but before we get there, I just want to remind all of us where we came from. Uh, so last week, as we worked through uh, the first part of uh, Malachi chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 9, um, we read through a, a bunch of warnings to the priests. And, and as a result of that, we recognize that like, we are all priests. It would be easy to read this passage and be like, well, I'm not a priest and I'm not a part of clergy, so that doesn't apply to me. But um, we are, uh, as Christians as as disciples of Jesus, we all, all are uh, subject to this conversation. And so from that, we discussed our responsibility to be conduits of life and peace to those around us. This week, uh, we, like I said, find ourselves moving into verses 10 to 16, where Malachi specifically addresses the breaking of covenant through divorce. Uh, and um, I believe we have Brittany reading for us. So Brittany, would you get us started by reading Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16? Yes, Malachi 2, verse 10. Are we not all children of the same father? Are we not all created by the same God? Then why do we betray each other, violating the covenant of our ancestors? Judah has been unfaithful and a detestable thing has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. The men of Judah have defiled the Lord's beloved sanctuary by marrying women who worship idols. May the Lord cut off the nation of Israel, every last man who has done this, and yet brings an offering to the Lord of heaven's armies. Here is another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning, because he pays no attention to your offerings and doesn't accept them with pleasure. You cry out, Why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young, but you have been unfaithful to her, though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are His. And what does He want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart, Remain loyal to the wife of your youth, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. Thank you for reading that for us, Brittany. Um, Let's just go ahead and jump into this. What are you seeing? What are your thoughts? What are your questions as we begin to work through this passage um, today? Um, so one question I have, um, it talks about in verse 10 about the covenant of your ancestors. Is that the same as the covenant with the Levites or was there another covenant? 
Um, fair question. I think, um, I guess, if I were to think about this, last week when it talked about the covenant with the Levites, it, it like explicitly spelled that out. And so I would say it's different. There might be similarities, but it's um, on the whole different than that covenant. Um, the covenant with the ancestors, I, from what I would understand, is is going to be more that general like relationship between God and Israel where God says, you are to be my people and I am going to be your God. And so this idea that um, God has entered into this relationship with them where he says, I am yours and I have responsibility towards you. And then in return, you know, we have the first commandment, which is you shall have no other God before me. And so that's like the Israelites response to the covenant. And so I think when we're talking about ancestral covenants, um, specifically with the Israelites, that's the the primary thing that we have in mind there is just that straight, straight up relationship between God and Israel. God uses Malachi uh, or in, in verse 11 to, to call them out as unfaithful to this, this covenant. They've, they've no longer made him their God. They've kind of went their own way. Uh, we talked about a little bit before we got on, before we started uh, the podcast, about how in in Haggai that there was this, like, not that everything they were doing was wrong, but it just wasn't the right heart. And now it seems like it's even moved beyond. They've just given up on what God is asking them to do, essentially, and they, they've done, they've rebuilt the temple, but their eyes are on what they want to do. And so they've no longer made him their, their God. They've made themselves their God. And so um, Malachi is quick to point it out that they have been unfaithful to this this covenant that you shared with us, Nick. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I guess just to mention it at the top of the, the show, um, covenant is really weaved throughout the entirety of this passage. And I mean, the the title itself, Covenant, is there. And so I know that a lot of the conversation on the surface is going to be dealing directly with like a, a marriage covenant between a man and a woman um, because Malachi is addressing things that are going on. Um, but there's also levels to this covenant conversation, which I think you began, began to bring out there, Derek, with what you were saying and how, you know, covenant is is ultimately what holds together the relationship between God and Israel and God and, and humanity and as a whole. So I have another question. Um, it talks about that the, um, that they defile the Lord's sanctuary by marrying women who worshiped idols. Is it just that they married the women or what, what is, what is causing this to be so such a big deal? What's causing that weird statement? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was very intrigued by this statement as well um, and, and did a little research into it. And what I came to understand is um, it's not so much a problem that Israelite men are marrying women from other nations the problem is that Israelite men are marrying women from other nations who serve other gods. And so, uh, because like we think about it and there, there's, um, Boaz and Ruth, right? Like Ruth was a woman from another nation. 
And yet she finds herself in the line of Jesus. And there's that, that, that marriage was blessed. And it's a difference because Ruth subjected herself to the God of Israel. Like she's a foreigner, but she identified God as the one true God. And now she becomes like available for Boaz to, to marry and it be okay. So it's not a problem that the men are marrying women from foreign nations. They're marrying women from foreign nations who serve the gods of those nations. And as a result, these women are continuing to serve those gods, continuing to worship those gods. And the men, obviously, having married them, are in contact with them. And by nature of their contact with these women who worship other gods, they are making themselves impure. And then they're still conducting and carrying on life as they would um, before marrying these women. And so they're going to the temple for worship um, and they're, they're doing it in a, in a, a flippant way where like they, their hearts are not ready from a, from a um, purity conversation. They're not ready. And yet they are entering the temple in impure ways. And, and so that's where this, this conversation comes up. I think your, does your say profane, Brittany? Is that what you read? I don't remember. Defiled. Oh, defiled. Sorry. Yours says defiled. Mine says desecrated. So that's how they desecrate the sanctuary. That's how they defile the sanctuary. Like they're, they're literally according to purity laws, defiling the sanctuary because they are not pure when they enter and they're not pure because of their contact with with the women of foreign nations who are serving other gods. It feels very much like a symptom of, of the passage from last week. So in verse eight, it says, but you have turned from the way and from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi says the Lord almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all people because you have not followed my ways but I've shown partiality in matters of the law. And so it feels like very much a symptom of that. When we aren't leading the way that God intends us to lead, they, the Levites have this covenant that they have with God and how they're supposed to lead. And when they don't lead, this is a symptom of not leading well. We have people who come behind us who see people in authority not leading well. And when they don't lead well, then it it has a... Like a um, Trickle down effect, it, yeah, yeah, like a trickle down effect, or we have this this cascade where it 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 just it ripples out and it's affecting everything, and so it feels very much like a symptom of of the leaders not leading well, and so when we see priests not leading in the manner that God has called them to, we see these positions of authority being abused and not not honoring God in the way that they're intended to. And so when a husband isn't honoring his role as a leader in the right manner, then it doesn't just affect the husband. And so we have generations of Levites, of priests who are affected, but we also have generations of people coming behind us, our children, who are affected by the decisions that we make. And so um, it, it's as if we see this abuse of power, whether it's in a Levite or in a man over his household, and we see the effects of not living into that that covenant, that covenant relationship, whether it's that covenant of 
of being the priest or that covenant of being a husband in a, in a marriage or in that covenant of being a follower of God and allowing him to be in control. But see, I, I think that's why they do like, I think that's why their sacrifices, like they're so like upset about them because they think everything's right. It's, it feels very much like a Matthew conversation. Like they feel like what they're doing is, is right. And yet, why wouldn't they think that it's right? Because they have Levites leading them, like they have these priests leading them that aren't doing things right. So they're just, they're only, they're only serving to the capacity that they know how to serve. And so if leaders aren't leading properly, people aren't going to serve properly because they have a skewed idea of what it means to serve. So they have a, a skewed idea of what it means to, to, um, like bring to these worship. things, right. To bring these things before God. Like they have a skewed idea of what that looks like. When you were talking about the, like the, the heart conversation, like that Matthew piece where like maybe on the outside things, they think things are fine, but on the inside, they're really not fine. Um, but I think as you already also alluded to, like it's more than just on the outside, everything is fine. Cause it's clearly not, but at the same time, they're only doing what they see. Like they're only participating in, in what is being permitted. And last week we read that the, the Levites, the priests were not, um, essentially we're, we're, we're allowing everything to be permissible. I, I, I shouldn't say everything because I think that's a sweeping statement, but they were, they were very permissive in their allowances for what passed as acceptable worship and what passed as acceptable purity. And so as, as I think about that, like the, the men here, so verse 12 down into verse 13 and 14 we have this, um, verse 12 first says, as for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. So like, doesn't matter what your actions are. It doesn't matter even if your actions are the actions that are requested because your actions fall short because the intention, like the heart behind the action is, is wrong. Um, and Malachi goes so far as to say, like, you are to be removed from this community like that's what he's saying remove him from the tents of jacob means that they no longer have a place uh, within the community and as i think back to some of those like purity conversations when somebody found themselves to be impure the expectation was to go and clean themselves and they actually depending on what the defilement was related to they actually had to spend time outside the camp like there was, there was an expectation of almost like this, this time period of purification to come back into right relationship, not just with God, but with the community at large. And so I think part of that conversation is happening here. And then it even just goes further and says, another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears um, because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask why it's because you've been unfaithful. And like, I don't know. I, I think about this. I hear this. And, and again, I know that this particular passage, Malachi is speaking directly 
and on surface about marriage with like between a man and a woman and the unfaithfulness that existed between specifically the Israelite men and the, the wife of their youth or their, their like Israelite wife early on that they had been betrothed to. But in closing, so be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Doesn't bring up marriage there. Doesn't bring up um, covenant relationship with a, a person in particular. It's this general statement of like essentially be on your guard against unfaithfulness as a whole. Mm. Because covenant exists between, yes, your your wife. Yes, those people around you, but also me as your God. And I just... I guess I, I find, I, I hear this, I hear these words and I feel like we today as the church probably can very easily find ourselves in verse 13. You flood the Lord's altars with tears. You weep and wail because your offering is no longer looked on with favor. Like, it doesn't matter what we do. It seems like, it seems like we're, we're fighting this uphill battle that, that is almost impossible. And things, yes, there's little victories here and there, but on the whole, like, it seems like we, we just, we can't win. And, and so many people find themselves like banging their head against the wall. Like, why, why is this not working? Why is God not blessing this? Why is God not like, why is the victory that we know is supposed to be here, not here yet? And I know that there's a whole lot that can go into that conversation. But when I look at it specifically with Malachi, I think part of the problem is like, the priests today and before perhaps have been a little bit permissive. And as a result, we as a people of God have lost sight of what it actually means and looks like to live in covenant relationship with him. We have gotten distracted and we have allowed other things to seep in and, and no longer is God our primary focus, no longer is is a life that it honors him, our primary fo focus, even though we know that the greatest commandment is to love God and then love others. Like we love, well, I mean, we love ourselves and we're trying to do this on our own and we're trying to make this whole thing go. And we say it's for the glory of God, but really it's for the expansion of my kingdom or my understanding or my influence or my power. And, we do all the right things on the outside, on the surface, but then we sit here and go, well, why isn't this working? I think it comes back to this conversation on covenant. As you were talking about that, one of the things that the images that came to mind, because we have the benefit of seeing Jesus's life and ministry is Jesus's teaching about what to do if you're at the altar, um, ready to present your offering and then realize that a brother or sister has something against you, that you're to go and be reconciled to them, leave your offering right there and then come back after you've been reconciled and present it. And so as I'm, I'm imagining these men coming with these unreconciled relationships mm. with their, with their wives, 
you have them here offering these sacrifices and, and Jesus, I mean, is continuing. We know that Jesus doesn't come for another 400 years. Right. right. And yet he's speaking still to this same issue that Malachi is trying to address. And so I don't know, as I hear you bringing it into today, it's no wonder that we still struggle with this. It's no wonder that we come on Sundays with our, with our offerings ready to worship and praise God. And yet we have all of this stuff that's gone unresolved that we haven't owned, that we're not taking care of. And some of which Derek, as you pointed out earlier, we may not even be aware is even an issue because we've believed other people's versions of what God wants us to do to be holy instead of actually looking to God to define what it means to be holy. Mm-hmm. And so I, as you were mentioning that, I just got this picture of Jesus and I was like, man, we, we just, we are such a fickle people in that we, you know, we keep, we keep struggling in the same places. Um, and so it's just, I, I guess the benefit is we have the Holy Spirit. And so thank you, Jesus, that you've given us given us a helper and an advocate to help us navigate this more easily um, than, than these people in, in Malachi would have had. I was thinking about that too. <laughs> like we have such an advantage because we would know, you know, I, I feel like that we have the Holy Spirit to guide us to, you know, when we, when something isn't right, when we have that, that little nudge that what we're doing isn't right. And, they don't have that. I think about this idea of reconciliation and what you, what we've kind of addressed about like the misleading misunderstanding that maybe has taken place and this saying, and I feel like we've talked about, talked about it before, but it was not during this conversation. Um, it would have been maybe during Matthew I know we've talked about it before just in 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 conversation and that is this phrase that I have come to despise which is I have to love them but I don't have to like them. If we're going to talk about real reconciliation, if we're going to talk about real covenant relationship which is what we are to have with God and others there's no such thing as we have to love them, but we don't have to like them. Like, I'm going to call it like it is. That's just, that, that's poor theology. That's terrible. It, it's a terrible misrepresentation of what God has called us to. It's a terrible misrepresentation of the life that Jesus lived. And it's a terrible, like, representation of, of what Jesus died to empower us to do through his spirit. Like we, we don't get the, the privilege of remaining like, yeah, remaining unreconciled. That's just not something that we get. And reconciliation actually is like right relationship being restored and right relationship that would not say, I don't have to like you. Right relationship is I love you with all that I am, which means I would lay my life down for you. It means that I do enjoy spending time with you. It means that I, I will tirelessly serve you. Like that's what this stuff means. 
And so I, I feel like, you know, thinking about where maybe we as, as influencers in the lives of others have misled, I have heard many people make statements like that. And that's just wrong. That's one of those places where, where people have been misled and, and we cannot give in to that lie because it's impossible for us to, like you just said, Natasha, it's impossible for us to do what Jesus instructs us to do by leaving our, our offering at the altar and go be reconciled with somebody before coming back and making that offering if we are going to end with, I don't have to like that person. That's not reconciliation. Right. Yeah, I think that's a perfect example of what it says in verse nine. So I know that's not our passage for tonight, but jumping back to verse nine, it's that is an example of showing partiality in matters of the law. It's we're we're selecting what we will choose to to follow and obey, um, which aspects of of Jesus we want to keep and take, and which we reject. And I. I, I'm, I mean, this is one among, you know, many, many, yeah. but, but I think it's, it's, it's an example of that partiality that still, still exists and still rampant in the church today. Another thing that this passage got me thinking a lot about was, um, because of the, the comment about having godly offspring, mm-hmm. um, I just was, I think I was caught up in this realization that back during this time, the women would have been primarily responsible for raising the children. And so the man is going to have relatively minimal influence into like the spiritual practices of their children when they're real young. I mean, they can model some things as a family, but if their whole family isn't doing it together, then it's probably going to be pretty lost on the children. And I'm guessing if the wives are being permitted to worship to foreign gods, it's not too big of a stretch to say that the children are probably being raised up in worshiping foreign gods. And as I think about that in our present context, I realize that our, our children really worship what their caretakers worship. Mm -hmm. And so where we pour our energy, where we pour our, our time and our effort, like their resources, our resources, they're watching. Mm -hmm. And, and this, this can apply to our child, like our biological children. Absolutely. But I think it also extends to any spiritual children Mm -hmm. that we have and, and they're watching and this is how they learn these these theologies, right? This is how they begin to understand what what Jesus wants of them. And this is where they pick up statements like the one that you just used as an example, uh, Nick. And so I think that we have to recognize, again, this, this huge responsibility as caretakers, which we are, just by bearing the name Christian, we become caretakers. Mm-hmm instantaneously. And so we have to be aware that those who look up to us, even the ones we're not really aware of are looking to us. They will worship what we worship. Yeah. I, um, for, for the sake of making sure that we don't dismiss what the fullness of what you just said, the weight of what you just said, Natasha, uh, like we might have tended to last week when we hear the word priest and we say, well, we're not a priest, so we don't need to worry about that. Like I'm not even a priest. I might be a pastor, but 
by definition, I'm not a priest, so I can just dismiss last week, right? No. Um, in the same way, like you just made a statement of like what what we worship will will rub off on others and they will worship it too. Um, and I want to caution all of us to to recognize that in saying worship, um, and I'm speaking on your behalf right now, Natasha. So if I misrepresent what you were saying, please say something. But in saying worship, you're not just talking about like the thing that you sing to on Sunday morning. Like that's not what you mean by worship. When you're saying worship, you're saying what you dedicate your life to. Right. Is going to rub off and influence others and they will also dedicate their life to that thing. And so though we may not be dedicating ourselves to foreign gods like the women in this passage that are addressed, we do dedicate ourselves to things that are other than the one true God very regularly. We dedicate ourselves to studying if we're in school. We dedicate ourselves to uh, a sport if uh, we're an athlete. Uh, we dedicate ourselves to watching sports if we are avid college football fans. Um, kind of takes up an entire day. And so it's the things that we dedicate ourselves to, the, that is worship, right? I, I, you said it early on in, in that conversation, like what we give our time, what we give our energy, what we give our resources to, like that, that is essentially the thing that we wor- are worshiping. And so the question becomes, what are we worshiping? What are we giving our time and our, our like mental capacity and our resources? What are we giving it to? Are we giving it to loving God and loving others? Or are we giving it to our own personal pursuits? Our own desires, our own wants. This thought occurred to me, actually, I, one of the times I was helping my girls with their homework, I was thinking, man, we spend so much time doing homework. And then I was thinking, man, they spend so much time at school. Goodness, like to become good at these things, like reading and math, which are all very important skills, they we dedicate a lot of time to this. Mm-hmm. And then I got to thinking, man, if I spent this much time, like discipling my kids in their relationship with Jesus, how good would they be at being able to listen for Jesus and identify his voice and follow him? Like what, what kind of a difference would there make in their life? And yet most of the time, I feel like for, for most of my life, really, I've sat and, and been content with, you know, so we go to church on Wednesdays. So we got our one hour on Wednesdays and then we got our Sunday school classes and then we're expecting the children's pastor to do, do their thing during, during kids church. And so, you know, I'm giving them at least five hours a week. Surely that's sufficient. Um, but then when I think about the things that they really become skilled at, we're devoting a whole ton more time to those things and, and not, I mean, life is not going to allow me to spend probably as much time discipling my kids as they spend in school and doing their studies. Sure. But it sure calls to my attention the need to be spending every possible moment I do have 
taking advantage of the doing life together part. So that way we can talk about those spiritual things as we go about our days and as we do our homework or as we participate in our extracurricular activities or as we're sitting at home watching a show, you know, we're, we're talking about and coaching relationship with Jesus, making the most of every moment that we have, recognizing that, you know, the couple of hours isn't enough to make them an expert in relationship with Jesus. And I've got to do better at that. And that's with my kids who I spend a lot of time with, you know, what about the other people that have been entrusted to me? Mm -hmm. Um, how much, how much more effort do I need to put into trying to spend time with them and, and coach them and disciple them? And so, um, uh, yeah, this is, it's interesting that you, you made that clarifying point. It comes back to a statement that we did make. It might've been about a month ago where, um, we said like, you don't, you don't go sit down at the dinner table to eat dinner. You sit down at the dinner table to make disciples while you eat dinner. You don't go to the football, the Fresno state football game on Saturday night to watch the Fresno state football game. You go to make disciples while you're watching the Fresno state football game. Or you're in line at the concession stand or in food. line at the concession stand. <laughs> I do, I I do want to bring up one thing that I feel like Jesus is like showing me as we're working through this. And so, the end of that verse, the end of fifteen, it says, "So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth." And and then it goes on in sixteen, the man who hates and divorces his wife says, "The Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect." Says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. And so for me, I got this image of who Jesus is. He's the groom, and we as his bride. And everything that he is, he's done is, is a, a sign of faithfulness toward us as, as his bride. And so everything that he does shows love and compassion and mercy and grace for his, for his bride. And so... Um, I think we can draw from the example of Jesus. Granted, Malachi didn't have that at this time. They didn't have that at this time, but we have the luxury of knowing that he is the groom and that we are the bride. And if we take his example of what the groom should look like, what the people, what what our covenant relationship should look like, this is what it means to be the faithful husband. This is what it means to be the faithful leader. This is what it means to be the faithful high priest. And so Jesus has laid the groundwork, even though they didn't have it here. We do. We have that luxury of seeing what Jesus has done. And so if you want to be faithful, look at the example of Jesus. Like we have that. We just finished doing Matthew and seeing the life and ministry of Jesus and what it meant to serve people. And everywhere he was going and everything that he was doing was an act of faithfulness toward the bride. I think that's that's a good connection to make, and and perhaps even the thing that can propel us into our week or propel us back into our week, since it's you know halfway through it. Our passage ends with a a negative statement: "Be on your guard and do not be unfaithful." The whole passage is about you know being unfaithful but it's all to bring us back to the conversation, this call 
to be faithful in our covenant relationship with Christ and with others. And so maybe as we look at our day tomorrow, as we look at uh, the subsequent days ahead of us, the question before us isn't how am I being unfaithful, but how can I be more faithful tomorrow in my relationship with Jesus, in my relationship with my spouse, in my relationship with my family, in my relationship with lost people? How can I be more faithful in my covenant relationships? As you journey with us, we recommend purchasing Midweek Meditations, A Journey Through Haggai and Malachi, which is available for purchase on Amazon. Also, be sure to follow the Living Vertizano podcast to stay current on all our new releases. To learn more about The Church at Riverstone, visit us at thechurchatriverstone.org.